I have had a very distracting week with general convention presentations um, presenting the operating budget for 2013 to the Board of Trustees, uh, writing this sermon, and having one of those weeks where you wrote a sermon but a whole bunch of other stuff has popped into your head and so you feel compelled somehow to talk about it. So it may be a little bit scattered, but I'm sure you'll get over it. <laughs> I want to say something about uh, the five marks of a disciple. It doesn't connect to the readings, but in my sermon I'm going to read you the list, which we have occasionally put in the narthex, um, Episcopalians being uh, what they are, should not look at this as the list that I have to do to check the boxes off to be part of things, but it's a way in which we might understand it for those who want to have uh, a frame uh, to keep their uh, faith and belief in and how to respond to the divine initiative. And also, this morning at 8 o'clock, when I heard the epistle, which I didn't intend to preach on, read, some things popped into my head that I thought I'd say at the beginning uh, before I speak about those discipleship things. And then finally, I want to say something about David and Goliath and the story and also about Jesus stilling the storm. And they all have something to do with how we understand God's presence and how we respond to the divine initiative and um, how we can, in fact, uh, benefit from uh, the presence of God coming within to enlighten and strengthen us uh, to provide us the opportunity to live fully into our vocations. Uh, there are a number of lists in the, Old Test in the New Testament about what would you do to demonstrate or know that you had made spiritual progress. And they come from Paul's writings mainly. And today uh, we have one in 2 Corinthians uh, a list of things that you might be able to use if you want to check and see whether or not you're making any spiritual progress or not. You know, when you think about this, is this just something because I, uh, th that I believe I've made progress because I feel better? Or have I in some way in my behavior been able to put in my hands on a regular basis? I've told you I get out of bed every morning and I say three things to myself. The Sulpatian method. Jesus before my eyes in adoration. Jesus in my heart in communion. And Jesus in my hands in cooperation. So Jesus in my hands in cooperation are the resolves that you make as you reflect and think about how I wish to seek and make spiritual progress. And Paul here describes in an extensive defense of his own apostleship some things that he believes he and those who follow him have been able to experience as they live as faithful Christian disciples. Purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, holiness of spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, Now, it may surprise you to know that this is not a Christian list. This is not a list that Paul came up with. He's rehearsing a list 
of behaviors, and elsewhere he does, does this in his writings, that were lists available to all those in the ancient Near East influenced by Hellenistic philosophy. Like the Stoics. I think the German biblical scholars call them haustafels or something like that, a house list. Put it on your refrigerator. And the reason I mention this is because what he is commending has something to do with being the best human being you can be and reflecting the, the highest and best values of whatever culture in whatever time you happen to find yourself in. Because when you become the best human being you can be, you live into the fullness of being made in the image and likeness of God. So, you know, sometimes it's two steps forward, uh, three steps back. But this is one of the ways you can check spiritual progress. The fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control. There's another list that we read from Paul. So think about that. That's part of what it means to be a disciple. Here's the list. A Christian disciple is one who keeps the Sabbath and commits to attending worship every Sunday. And I want to say something about that because we're living in 2012 and the idea of coming to church every Sunday is, is uh, difficult. We have soccer games on Sunday now and Little League on Sunday and birthdays on Sunday instead of the birthday day in the week because everybody's too busy except on Sunday to have the birthday. So let's not be curmudgeons about this. Uh, this is, as they say in sports talk radio, it is what it is. But the reason this is on the list is because uh, people do get refreshed by Sunday worship. And Sabbath keeping has more to do than just worship when we speak of it. It's the way in which you and I find the time to be able to... Uh, Sit quietly and reflect. I read a study about five years ago that said that every human being needs at least 20 minutes a day to do absolutely nothing. Can you do that? Can you sit there and do absolutely nothing? I think it produces such an enormous amount of guilt for so many people or restlessness or fidgets that it's impossible. But you and I, for our own spiritual development and growth, need some form of quiet, doing nothing. And we also need to properly understand what it means to speak about leisure. It's a wonderful book written many years ago by the German philosopher Josef Pieper called <clears throat> Leisure, the Basis of Culture. So it might interest you to know, by the way, you can maze your friends. Leisure in Greek, the word for leisure is skole. The translation into Latin from Greek is skola. And we translate Latin skola into school. 
in English, or as my morals and ethics professor at Neshota used to say, school, because he was from North Carolina. So it may have something to do with understanding leisure uh, without taking this too far as some form of um, uh, focusing on things that are going to develop the highest and best of your character, improvement of your hobbies, doing the things that you need to do to, uh, to do that. The second one is one who witnesses to an intentional faith, intentional faith as modeled in the baptismal covenant on page 304 of the Book of Common Prayer. Every Ash Wednesday I open uh, the baptismal covenant and I read it to myself in church and ask myself, how, do I, how have I done over the past year with the baptismal covenant? One who seeks to honor the tithe is the biblical standard of faithful financial giving to the church. And this is a line also about generosity, the way in which we understand uh, God's call to each of us to do something very important. And that is to learn how to move out of the realm of kinship altruism. I spoke about this last week. It's the focus of our generosity, affection, care and attention starts first with our kinship group, our family. So the goal of the Christian life and the preaching and teaching of the Savior of the world was that this kinship altruism is something that we all need to practice with one another outside the kinship group as well. Not that that not be your primary focus, but that we're all called to extend And so this line about stewardship and giving has something to do with that idea of extension. One who uses his or her spiritual gifts in the work of the upbuilding of the church. One who reaches out to others with the love of Christ. I'm reading again Father Thomas Keating's book, uh, Invitation to Love. And I'll have more to say about that uh, in the next few weeks. But in, in there, he speaks about the practice of the contemplative life, the understanding of how to center ourselves in God, the goal of it being how do we now begin to practice the unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness that we have received from God. So let me talk about David and Goliath. David and Goliath are going to meet. It appears that there's been some deal struck between the Israeli army and the Philistines. Ernest Cockrell pointed out uh, in the sermon discussion group that the word Palestinian is translated in the ancient languages as Philistini. So that means, of course, that they've been around for a long time. I met a Palestinian Episcopal priest a number of years ago by the name of Naim Atik. And I said, oh, gee, it's nice to meet you. He's a priest in Jerusalem. I said, how, how long have your family been Christians? He said, 2,000 years. <laughs> For 2,000 years, they've been Christians. We sometimes forget this, you know. So David is going to go out and meet Goliath. And King Saul says to him, 
uh, you sure you go, you know, okay. He said, look, put on my armor and take my sword. You've got to have some protection. You need to go out there. So he puts all this stuff on David, and David's kind of like, you know, doesn't fit him. So he takes it off, and he looks just like the shepherd boy, and he gets his slingshot, and he gets the five smooth stones, and he goes out. Whenever I read this text, I think it, it has something to do with uh, understanding our vocation and having the in, internal uh, self-regulation and strength, the uh, non-anxious presence to be able to say, I don't need to be clothed with the expectations of somebody else in order to fulfill my vocation. I don't need to have Saul's stuff on to do this. I'm going to go out there just as I am. Do you have to require some kind of a persona or become somebody else to be a faithful Christian person? I mean, there are a lot of people who've thought so over the ages. And maybe what you need to be is yourself, made in God's image. So David is certainly self-possessed for a young man, isn't he? He goes out there and he, he talks turkey to Goliath. And then he kills him. Somebody said Goliath must have been huge. And in the measurements that are in the Bible, he was probably very tall. Someone at the sermon discussion at nine said he had a pituitary problem. <laughs> That's how we tend to explain things these days, don't we? Oh, he had a, must have had a pituitary problem. That's why he was so tall. Charlemagne. The Holy Roman Emperor, who lived in the 800s, was seven feet tall. They dug up his tomb when I was in seminary, and there in there was a skeleton that was seven feet tall. And when I was in Rome in 1975, it was a holy year, and they had a lot of things in the Vatican Museum that weren't normally out. And one of them that was out in a glass case was Charlemagne's dalmatic, which is the vestment a deacon wears at the liturgy. And in the coronation rites of the uh, Holy Roman Emperor, of the Queen of England, the King of England, they are bestowed in the coronation rites with deacon's orders. And it used to be the custom in the Middle Ages that the monarch would read the gospel at the liturgy on Christmas. So Charlemagne's Dalmatic is out in the glass. It was huge. It was no lie that he was seven feet tall. This thing was just ginormous. I still remember it. You and I are reading this reading and understanding that you, we can live into our vocations just as we are. We don't need to be clothed with other people's expectations or with false expectations that we load on ourselves. In the gospel for today, we have the story in Mark of the stilling of the storm. 
you know, it's just in, in Mark's gospel, in the original language, it's all in the present tense. Or it's a tense we don't have in English. So it's he goes, he does, he does. It, it's not, uh, you know, like he went over there. It's like it's happening. It's written so like it, it's happening now, right now. So here he is out on the lake with all the disciples. And uh, he's gone to sleep in the back of the boat. And a storm comes up. And the disciples are thinking, why is he asleep? How can he be asleep? Years ago, I was on a, a, one of those ships going across the English Channel to France before the Channel. And the, it was so rough, I was lying in one of those barca loungers things. I was just seasick. And there was a guy asleep in one of those barca loungers next to me, out like a light, sleeping the sleep of the just. I was so full of resentment, I didn't know what to do. (laughs) So here they go back. Jesus is out like a light. They're wondering, how can he sleep like this? Well, he wasn't anxious. He wasn't anxious about what was going to happen. So they woke him up and he said, well, what... Why are you upset? Do you have any faith? And then he commands the waters to be still, to be calm. Now Mark reproduces this story because he wants to connect Jesus to what we read about in the Hebrew Bible of Yahweh stilling the waters. And that in this human being, we see now the unique focus of the divine presence. Who does this too? And it is for the purpose of instructing the disciples that they're in the midst of a person. If God were walking around on the earth, this is who he'd be like. And that's what they believed. That's what the church of Mark's gospel believed. Now when I read this text, I always think about the uh, stilling of the natural storms, the, the, the control that Jesus has over the natural order. Mark is at pains to speak about Jesus' dominion over the natural order and also over the unseen world. The only Beings that recognize Jesus in Mark's gospel are the demons and the spirits. They know exactly who he is. And they use his messianic titles when they speak to him. And they do it out of fear because they know that he has power over them. So I read this and I think to myself... If we believe that we are the beneficiaries of the Spirit of God, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us, that power to still our internal demons, our conflicts and anxieties, the reform of our emotional, mental, and spiritual states is possible. And when we read this gospel in 2012, we see that it is possible now to obtain through 
our commitments and our intentions some species of serenity and clarity about our life, how we live into God's purposes. And we always, of course, connect that to the fact that each one of us is necessary for the fulfillment of God's plan for the cosmos. And so the community that wrote Mark's gospel looked at this and they said, who is this that even stills the storms? And he has taught us and will teach us more about how we can still those internal storms that are part of our living and how we learn to overcome those things that keep us from doing what we need to do, from fulfilling the duties of state. So this week, give thanks for the Spirit of God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you. Think about the importance of Sabbath-keeping and how it's important for you uh, to look after yourself. And that's part of what Sabbath is all about. And see if you can understand also that you can live into your vocation without being clothed with other people's expectations. You can be just who you are, made in God's image. Amen.